Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Good morning. Let's go ahead and begin class with prayer this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for an opportunity together to study. We ask that your spirit would be with us today. And, and we have uh, members in the class who are traveling and out of town. We ask that your uh, uh, hand of providence will watch over them. Uh, one of our class members, Alan, has asked for special prayer this week as he has uh, got some personal issues that he's addressing. We ask that you would give him wisdom and strength to deal with the issues that he is uh, uh, struggling with. We pray that you will enlighten our minds today, that we can come to know and see you better and leave here to be uh, witnesses for you, that this world might see you clearly and we might uh, see you face to face very soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. We are doing lesson number five in our quarterly, Agents of Hope, God's Great Missionaries. And the title this week is Matthew 10, Jesus and His Disciples. And I thought we'd look at Matthew 10 a little bit. And I, and I uh, went through Matthew 10 and, and I found several texts of interest that I thought we might, might want to start out focusing on and discussing. And then if we have time, we can go through some of the points the lesson brought out for us. But I thought there were some interesting passages in Matthew 10. And I, I think I'll read some of the ones that I thought. And if you guys have some in Matthew 10 you wanted to be sure and discuss, then bring those up as well. But Matthew 10:5 it says, These twelve Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any of the towns of Samaria. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, preach this message. The kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your word, shake the dust off your feet. And when you leave that small town, I tell you the truth, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on that day of judgment than for that town. I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. Do not suppose I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be members of his own household. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You know, those are the, the passages I pulled out that I thought, well, they might be interesting for us to s- discuss in here today. What do you all think? Yeah. Okay, and if you have some others, we can do that as well. But let's start with the first one. The, the 12 are sent not to the Gentiles, not to the Samaritans, but to the lost sheep of Israel. Go preach the message. The kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick. Raise the dead. Freely have received, freely give. So why would Jesus tell his disciples to go only to Israel and not to the other people of the world. Does God care more about the children of Abraham than the other people of the world? Do the children of Abraham get a special pass into heaven? Why these instructions? Go to Israel, not to the other peoples of the world. They would probably get into discussions and arguments. They would probably get into discussions and arguments like, you know, Jesus with the children of Israel, you mean? No. Yeah, they didn't argue with They never argued, did they? The seventy with the Samaritans. Really, uh, when Jesus went to the Samaritans, did they argue or did they receive him? Who was arguing with him all the time? The disciples, Pharisees. The Pharisees and scribes—they were the ones always arguing, weren't they? 
And then she went out and became a great witness and brought the whole town to see him. That's right. Yeah. That's the way Jesus handled her. Yeah. Well, the, the gospel, the Jews were given the first opportunity. Right. And and then it was to go. When the first opportunity for what? To, re- to receive him, to accept him. And if if the disciples had gone to the to the Gentiles first, there might have been prejudices right. against listening to them since they had bypassed. Okay, so there's reason number one. Reason number one, the Jews were prejudiced people. The Jews were prejudiced people. So if the disciples would have taken Christ's message outside of Israel first, then the Jews would have closed their heart to the message because they would have felt slighted. They would have felt put down. They would have felt not special. They would have felt that this can't be right because we are the chosen of God and we have to be first. So there was an arrogance and prejudice in the hearts of the Jewish people that actually Christ was sensitive to, realizing the hardness of their hearts. He wanted the message to go to them first so that they wouldn't close the hearts. Conversely, would the message go to the Jews first? Would the Gentiles shut their hearts? No. No. So it was a strategic move, recognizing the bias of the of the Jewish people. So there's there's reason number one. What other reason? They had to present a unified message. If the apostles were preaching a certain teaching, and then the Jewish uh, Pharisees were preaching a different message, people would be like, "Well, what do we believe? Which one?" Okay. So the the second reason to try and bring God's chosen ambassadors, and the Jews were chosen to be his ambassadors, his representatives, his messengers, his evangelists, that's what the Jewish nation was for, to try to get them on board with the true message, to try to get the Jewish nation on board with the truth about God, and then empower them to be this whole nation to take the message to the world. Uh, So reason, reason number two, to get the, the people who had already had the, the biblical record taught to them since childhood. They had a database in their mind. They didn't really understand it correctly, but they had the foundation. They had the systems. And all they needed is the right key to interpret the meaning, and they would suddenly be empowered to take a message to the world, whereas the Gentiles have a big learning curve to get all the information. And so this idea, let's get the Jewish nation, let's get these people who have the database but don't understand it correctly, give them the right key, boom, light goes on, we have a whole group of people that can help us evangelize the world. Okay, so reason number two. Yes. That's kind of what I was saying is that, yeah, their foundation was huge and they had already been given the whole sanctuary system. They were in a position to where they should have recognized the Messiah. They were looking for him. They knew the scriptures better than anybody. Like I said, they'd had the sacrificial system that all pointed to Christ. So, in theory... Right. They had all the data. They just weren't interpreting it right and they needed that clarity. But if they get that clarity, just like the apostle... Paul, for example, perfect example. Once he got the right key, then all that knowledge suddenly became very powerful and became a great witness for God. How much more so if the whole nation of Israel would have had that same transforming experience? So go to Israel first because they're prejudiced and they'll close their minds to the message if we don't. Uh, So we're going to play to the smallness of their hearts, basically. Two, because they have a database misunderstood, but if we can get them converted, then they become powerful instruments. We ambassadors for Christ. Third reason. How about the prejudice of the disciples themselves? 
were the disciples prejudiced and biased. And this was their first evangelist, first missionary journey. Were they ready on their first missionary journey to go out with a heart of love, a heart of acceptance, a heart of compassion, a heart for non-Jews? Or, or would they have had a, well, Christ said to do it, but I really don't like you people. You guys don't deserve this message. Would there have been an arrogance that would have come through, a disdain? Even after the resurrection of Christ, did Peter still struggle with that issue? For a while until he got his vision. Right. And so do we see then the three reasons I think that God said one was for the apostles' own spiritual development. They needed this process of ministry, this process of witnessing, this process of being on a missionary journey to help soften their hearts, to be practiced being a conduit for Christ. We want to convert the Jewish people so they can use the database they have with the right key and become witnesses for God. And we don't want to prejudice the Jews with their own bias and close their hearts. So I think there was three reasons, and none of them have to do with God having favoritism, do they? None of them have to do with, well, God's a, God likes the Jews more than he likes other people. Not at all. It was a strategic move because he loves all people and he wants all people to come to salvation. This was the most uh, expedient way to make that message go forward. Yes? There's another reason is that um, they could become discouraged at the conflict. If they would have gotten a conflict with the leaders of the Jews... Then even the, the, the disciples themselves would have gotten discouraged with the conflict. That's another aspect of the bias that would have been stirred up in the Jewish heart because they're taking a message outside of Judaism. So they would have been come under attack for the leaders. Absolutely. For, for their discouragement. Like that. That's good. What about the kingdom of heaven is near? So the message you're going to take the kingdom of heaven is near. What, what is that message? What does that mean? The kingdom of heaven first. Well, notice this. It, when he told him the kingdom of heaven was near, what was the very next thing he said to do? Heal Notice what there was something directly connected. Kingdom of heaven. Heal, set free, restore, regenerate, recreate. It's on earth. It's now instead of life. The kingdom of heaven. So, and then it says, freely you have received, received freely. Give. Is that giving us a clue as to what the kingdom of heaven is? What's the kingdom of heaven? Sharing what we have learned, how close we can be to Him, and we can share what we have learned. Share what we have learned. Somebody else said something? Unselfish. I mean, the unselfish circle. There you go. The kingdom, the kingdom, the, 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 the governance, the, the, uh, the rulership of God is based on love. Freely you have received, freely give. It's the constant circle of love, the circle of beneficence, the circle of giving, the opposite of selfishness, the opposite of looking out for number one, the opposite of taking. But it's the interest in others built. And so he says, tell them the kingdom of heaven is near. Give what you've received. Heal, restore, lift up, build, love other people. This is the kingdom of heaven. Notice it's all woven together. How do you understand then the Matthew ten fourteen through 16? So you go with this message, the kingdom of heaven is near. We love you people. We want to build you up. We want to heal you. We want to feed you that are hungry. Uh, If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, shake the dust off your feet. And when you leave that home or town, I tell you the truth, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on that day of judgment than it will be for that town. Shake the dust off your feet. Was Christ telling the disciples to insult the people who reject them? Was he telling them to show disdain and disgust? Okay? You don't have anything? Huh. We're out of here. Is that what he was saying to do? Leave them free. Do you understand? That's how it's interpreted. I'm not even going to carry your dust. Your dust isn't worthy to be on my feet. 
Isn't that how it's often read? Is that what Christ was telling them to do? To insult the people that rejected them. To show disdain. To show disgust. What was he telling? How do you understand it? Yes, of course they're not going to listen. They're rejecting you. So why shake the dust off your feet? Don't waste your time. Don't let yourself get discouraged. Ooh, I like this. Don't let yourself get discouraged, yes? A word of warning. You know, sometimes if you see something um, in parable, it wakes you up to something that you may not have heard when they were, you were being taught. Have any of you ever gone out, oh, in gathering? <laughs> <laughs> Witnessing, literature evangelism, you know, some of those things. And have you ever come across someone with a negative attitude? Critical. Maybe maybe even some people that were mocking. Ugly. Mean-spirited. Maybe if you walked into a particular... Imagine now in this culture where it wasn't like ours, that groups would gather. They might start making fun in a place. Could that happen? What might you be tempted to do coming across people like that? Tell them all. Get discouraged. Might you be tempted for discouragement? Might you be tempted that it's useless? Might you feel like you're a failure? That though other people can witness, other people can ingather, other people can get up and publicly speak, other people can do these things, but, but you certainly aren't called for that. You don't have those abilities. God, God, God just must not have blessed you in that way. Might you be tempted to be discouraged in some way? So, is Jesus telling them if people reject you, if they call you names, if they insult you, if they criticize you, if they mock you, belittle, demean, defame, or otherwise attempt to discourage you, don't take any of their attitude with you, any of their ideas. Shake the dirtiness of their hearts off your feet. When you leave that place, let the negativity, the selfishness, the hardness, the cruelty, the meanness, the filthiness of character remain with them. Don't take it with you. Do you think that's what he was telling him? Yeah, because the next statement is, be cautious as snakes and gentle as doves. So, in other words, don't continue to you know, get belittled or even um, be sarcastic to them, but rather uh, move on. And let the words that you've already said soak in, and maybe later they will become um, words that they will hear. See, sin is insidious. When you hear about a sin of somebody, I just want you to recognize how insidious it is. You hear about a pastor who, maybe it's your pastor who's done something, stolen some money from the church, uh, had a relationship with somebody he shouldn't have had. Uh, These things happen. You hear about that. Do you realize that you are then tempted? You are tempted to sometimes, if you've looked up to that person, to be discouraged. If, uh, if you haven't necessarily looked up to that person, to rise up and feel like <laughs> they got what they deserved and, and to be judgmental and arrogant. Do you realize that when you find out that you are being tempted? Isn't that right? Do you think Christ is saying, when that stuff happens, shake it off. Don't let it into your heart. Well, somebody read for us John chapter 13, verses 8 through 11. Jesus is in the middle of washing the disciples' feet, and he comes to Peter. Peter saith unto him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. Simon Peter said unto him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. 
Jesus said to him, He that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit, and ye are clean, but not all. For he knew who should betray him. Therefore said he, Ye are not all clean. So notice this. He said to Peter, he says, A person who has a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew the one who was going to betray him. Is he talking only dirt on the feet here? Physical dirt, dust? Is that what he's talking about? He's talking, or is he speaking about some other type of dirt? Yes. Do you think this washing of the feet, if you're clean, the only thing we need to do is wash the feet. Is he symbolically, is this connected in any way with shaking the dust off the feet? There's a connection here. Yeah, we've discussed this before. In this culture, it was to be avoided to touch someone else's feet. And we still see this today. Um, you brought this up when they toppled the uh, Saddam. Saddam Hussein statue. All the all the locals went up and were slapping the thing with their sandals. <coughs> so, is Jesus suggesting that when he's giving us insight that this was not an insult he was telling his disciples to do when he said, shake the dust off his feet. He was telling them basically, don't let the sins of the other people, the arrogance, the evil, the hardness of the hearts of the people that reject you, don't let that be attached to you and don't walk out of there with that stuff in your heart. That's, right. That's what he's telling them. Recognize that because I'm going to tell you, a lot of people think it's about actually showing disgust and disdain. Um, I've even heard some eminent leaders in our church recently talk about how they think that when he says shake the dust off the feet, Jesus was telling them to show them disdain, to show them disapproval uh, by shaking the dust off your feet. Yeah, basically being judgmental. What about uh, the next portion? It would be better for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than these cities. They'll get their just reward. Yeah, it'd be better for Sodom and Gomorrah. He will definitely make these cities pay worse, won't he? They're going to burn. Tell me, what do these following texts have in common or situations have in common with the, it'd be better for Sodom and Gomorrah? Romans 2.5 But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. Romans 2.5, uh, the passage in the Old Testament about Pharaoh's heart being hardened, and the statement out of early writings where Mrs. White says that some will suffer longer in the flames according to the deeds that they've done than others. How do those three different places tie into this idea that Sodom and Gomorrah will actually, and it will be worse for these cities who reject the disciples than it will be for Sodom and Gomorrah? How do they all connect? Is there a thread that runs through them all? Yes. Uh, Sodom and Gomorrah was no more. They were asleep. These cities would be around until the end of time. What well, says on the day of judgment, though? Would it be better on the day of judgment? Every for... day is the day of judgment. Yeah, I don't think that's what it's referring to every day. I think it's referring to a specific end time event. Why will it be better for, for Sodom and Gomorrah than these cities at the day of judgment, at the end of time? Had Sodom and Gomorrah received the, the light of the grace of God? Okay, interesting. Interesting question. Abraham and Lot, they were acquainted. What does it mean that we pile up wrath the day of wrath? We accepted lies instead of the truth. Other thoughts? We accepted lies, rebellion. There's a passage in the Old Testament that refers to the nations of Canaan having been spared an earlier extermination 
because they filled up their cup of wrath over the 400 years, basically, that, that Israel was in Egypt. That's, that text is there. So what does it mean, we store up wrath for the day of wrath? It says, because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant hearts, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath. What's it mean? It seems to me that God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. And in a way it's saying to people who are abused or whatever else, that believe it to me, I'm the judge. God will take care okay. of that. That is a different issue, but you're right, God does say that. How does, this, how does it apply to... We are storing up against ourselves wrath for the day of wrath. Like Pharaoh, we keep hardening our hearts. Okay. Worse and worse. Yes. The more that you are presented with truth, the more that you are rejecting truth, the more um, concrete or the more solid your rejection of the truth is. And that's going to be harder for you in the day of revelation of pure truth. Oh, I like it. I like it. See, let's, let's ask a couple of questions. When, everyone in this room has committed sin. I'm going to make that assumption. And uh, when we commit sin, what is the normal initial human heart response when we are aware that we've done something wrong? Guilt. Guilt, conviction, shame, self-disgust, self-loathing, fear, insecurity. I mean, all these bad negative emotions when we've realized we've done something wrong. Isn't that generally the normal initial response? Now, we can make that go away in two ways. God's healthy way of resolving that is repentance and restoration, reconciliation with God. And we do that, we have a regeneration of heart, we have peace, all that bad stuff goes away. There's another way that's not God's way that can make that go away too. Denial and distortion. It wasn't me, it was that woman you gave me. If you never brought her to this garden, I would have never done such a thing. I'm not at fault at all. We can twist our minds away from the truth, creating lies, and the more we sin... If we won't go to repentance, then the more lies we pile up upon lie, upon lie, upon lie, upon lie that we have to hide behind in order to avoid experiencing the conviction of guilt, the shame, the self-disgust that would bring us to repentance. And so the more we commit sin without repentance, the more we're damaged in mind, the more we're damaged in character, the more we pile lie upon lie, distortion upon distortion in order to avoid dealing with it. And you've heard me saying here before, you can never avoid the truth. You can only delay the day you deal with the truth. If you deal with the truth here and now on this earth, it will be unpleasant for a little while, but you're dealing with it under the umbrella of God's grace, under the umbrella of God's love, under the umbrella of God's goodness, and you will experience healing, regeneration, reconciliation, and eternal life. If you refuse to deal with the truth here and now on this earth, you will persist, as several have said in here, so long into sin, piling lie upon lie, distortion upon distortion, hardening the heart, solidifying the character in rebellion against God that no amount of truth anymore has any converting power on you. And then the day that we come to judgment is the day that a full truth is revealed from God, the full truth of His presence, that no amount of human lies and mental distortion can hide from. And what will it be like on that day for people to come face to face with the truth of their own selves that they've been running from for all that time and what they've done. So in the condition of Pharaoh, Pharaoh's heart being hardened. Pharaoh's heart being hardened. Why was Pharaoh's heart hardened? Nobody had as much truth presented to Pharaoh and the ancient leaders as Pharaoh did. And every time the truth came, it convicted him. And he gave in. And the truth, by the way, if you remember, the plagues weren't the truth, God hates you. The plagues were, your gods are powerless. Every one of the plagues was an attack on one of the gods Pharaoh worshipped. 
And he was convicted. You're right. The God of the frogs doesn't have any power. Your God, Moses, is the God, is the true God. I, I'm convicted of that. And then the plague was stayed. And Pharaoh hardened his heart and went to one of his other gods. And that God was hit. And Pharaoh was convicted. You're right, Moses. Your God is the right God. My God has no power. And then after the plague was stayed, his heart was hardened. And he, and, and he chose one of his other gods. And down the line of gods that he went, and it kept happening. And he kept hardening his heart over and over and over again. What will it be like for Pharaoh? Cry for the rocks and on the day that all truth is revealed, when he comes to full recognition of what his choices did to himself, his family, and his nation, what his choices did, it's going to be horrible for him. And so we see a threat. And so why do some suffer longer in the flames? Well, what are these flames? These are the flames of God's loving glory, the flames of truth and love that emanate from God's personhood and burn through the lies and distortions in our minds. And those who have persisted in building up lie upon lie, the bigger, deeper pile of lies, it takes longer for that truth to burn through. And some are there processing through a much deeper, longer history of distortion and deceit and lies and, and denial and misrepresentation and externalization and exploitation, that they are just, the, the truth is burning through. So some are there suffering in the flames longer than others. So we can put all these things together. So how does it come back to why then do, do these cities suffer worse than Sodom? What was the truth presented to Sodom by the angels that came? What was the message that they rejected? Basically, leave the city, or you'll be destroyed. Well, what was the sin of Sodom? Yeah, exactly. The, the city is going to be destroyed. That was the message that came, and the sin of Sodom was. Ezekiel sixteen forty nine. It says, "Now this is the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and the needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before the Lord." See, a lot of people think it has to do with sexual sin. Well, think, yeah, it's actually selfishness, inhospitality, not caring for others. So when the angels came, did they want to, Lot showed hospitality, wanted to put him in his house. The rest of the city wanted to exploit them. And people go, see, homosexuality. I say this, if those angels would have come in the form of women and instead of the form of men, and the men of the city would have turned out and wanted to rape them, would the Lord have said, well done, heterosexual rape, I'm so proud. <laughs> no, they were still in hospitality, inhospitable, selfish, self-exploitation, exploiting another for one's selfish own gains. That was the sin. That was it. And so the message that came, though, was the message of destruction. God is powerful. God is powerful. Listen or be destroyed. That's the, tr- that's the message of basically most of the Old Testament. God is powerful. At, at Carmel, what was the message at Mount Carmel? God is powerful. At Sinai, what is the message of Sinai? Power. God is powerful. God is powerful. God is powerful. Why is the message of the Old Testament God is powerful? Why is that the message being given consistently? Now, some people got a different message. Moses saw more than God is powerful. But most of the people in the Old Testament are getting a message God is powerful. Why? Because of the other gods. Everybody claimed their God was more powerful. What were you going to say, Linda? Well, because they had their own idols mm-hmm. and their own gods that they said, they bring the rain, they bring you know, life to us, they give us our children. It's so was it the mindset of the people? Would the, would the people have listened if, if the message from Moses or Elijah would have been, God is gentle and loving? No. Would they have said, oh yeah, we want that God? 
Or did they want a powerful God? The only thing they would respect at that point was a powerful God. And so you get this message of the Old Testament, God is powerful. What my friend Brad out in California says is, is they got the dim light. They got the most, there's the smallest revelation of God, God is powerful. And that's true, but it's the most insignificant piece of who God really is. God is powerful. What did the disciple, what message did the disciples take to people? See, so the message that people saw them got, God is powerful. And they rejected it. What did the message that the disciples took to towns? The kingdom of heaven is near. Freely you have received, freely give, heal. The message of God's character of love. They brought a message of God's true nature. They brought the message of Jesus Christ. Who rejected more truth? The cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, the cities that rejected the disciples. So what will it be like for those when they come face to face with truth who have rejected more truth? It will be a deeper, more suffering, more agonizing experience. This is why they suffer more. God isn't arbitrary. He's not going to say, okay, you, I was here in person, you rejected me? Okay, I'm going to make you pay for that. You just rejected angels back then when they came. You rejected me. You're going to have to pay twice for that. That's not what he does. It's a consequence. We will be in more agony realizing the depth of privilege that we've had that we've rejected. It will torment our souls as we see it in our own minds. Does this make sense? Today we've seen the powerfulness of God in the Old Testament, and then we've also seen his unselfish giving as he lived his life. So it's not just his death, but his life that was so powerful in his unselfishness. Because it says, I just love this verse, and Brad says it too, uh, as you do. He, he was so powerful that he knelt down and washed their feet. Yeah, in, in the... In the- John 13, we started to read a few. Actually, read the verses just before. It says, when all power in heaven and earth had been given to him, then he girded himself and got down on his knees and washed his disciples' feet. Think about that use of power. Isn't that profound? Or on the cross, with the all power at his disposal, did he use his power to stop us, human beings, from abusing him and killing him? Father, forgive them. Think about that. He wasn't like the helpless thieves up there with no choice. He could have stopped it, and he didn't. All power was at his disposal. If you were one of those thieves and you had had all that power, remember the, the there was a movie out recently, Bruce Almighty. You know what do you think Bruce would have done? Yeah, what would we have done? Yeah, it would have been a bad and ugly day. Yes. More than not thinking destruction on the people who were destroying him, he was actually more concerned for their welfare than he was for himself because he realized that by doing this to him, they were actually <coughs> destroying themselves. And his prayer was, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Beautifully said. Beautifully said. Absolutely right. All right, Matthew ten thirty two. Whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. Oh, okay, well, there you've got it now. You better just go around witnessing for Jesus, because if you don't, well, he won't speak your name before the Father, and then the Father won't know who you are, and you're in big trouble. He won't plead your case case before his Father. And if you don't have a friend in court, well, you know what you're going to get. What do you all think? How do you all understand this? That's right, somebody said. Amen. You know, this is commonly taught. 
I mean, this text will be used as you better do your witnessing and you better proclaim the name of Jesus or else, uh, or else he won't proclaim your name in heaven and then you're in big trouble. He won't be able to stand up for us because we're not on his side. What do you think about that idea? He won't be able to stand up for us because we're not on his side. We don't want it. Yeah, he's not going to force, he's not going to force himself on us again. He can say, yeah, well, he's mine. He just doesn't know it yet. Can Jesus lie? No. See, there's some things God cannot do. Did y'all know there's some things God cannot do? The Bible says God cannot lie. He cannot be tempted by evil in James chapter 1, 13. God cannot lie. So Jesus cannot lie. So can he state someone is healthy and healed when they are actually not? Can he acknowledge someone as his friend when they are in fact his enemy? Can he stand before God in the universe and declare someone to be like him in character and heart when they refuse to let him into their heart? Can we be healed in mind, heart, and character if we reject the truth that Jesus has brought? So how can Jesus stand up before the Father and claim us if we refuse him and what he represents? This is not an arbitrary thing on his part. It's not a vindictive thing. Oh, you won't call my name, I won't call yours. It's Jesus can only speak the truth. And if we reject Christ, then we remain in our terminal, sick, unhealthy, self-centered condition. He can't declare that we're anything but that. Well, he, he says, how oft would I have gathered you under my wings and so forth and wept because they would So I think he'll weep over us if we're lost. I think so. What do you all think about that? I have some depictions that I've heard presented uh, from pulpits and nearby that God, with some sort of pleasure at inflicting punishment and suffering upon the wicked, and particularly Satan, who will deserve what he gets in the end. Do you think God will be rejoicing the day he sees his firstborn son of creation, the first created being of all history, die. No. Not at all. And he said, mothers may forget, but I won't. As I live, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, say the Lord. Yeah. I mean, what, what is the deal when we actually have ideas that God is going to take some satisfaction in that? Because that's the way they think. And it's also the way we think. I mean, that's don't we think, well, that murderer or that drunk should get his. He's going to get what he deserves. And if we think that, what is it a revelation of? Say that louder. Our own hearts. It's a revelation of our own hearts. That, hey, wait a minute. Somehow there's work for Christ to do because I'm not saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. I'm not like, Stephen, Father, don't lay this at their account. I'm not like Moses. Father, take my name out of the book. I'm not like Paul. Hey, I would gladly give my life that my fellow Jews who were of course, persecuting Paul might be saved. If we have that attitude, then we need to step back and say, Lord, there's some, search me and see the wicked way in me. Create in me a clean heart. Give me a, a more loving heart. Prepare me to be like you so that I can see you face to face. All right, Matthew 10, 34 through 39. Do not suppose I've come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother. Uh, okay, you family members, all right, I don't want you sitting together in here. S- split up. Mothers and daughters, fathers and sons can't sit together. We're turning against each other here. 
to turn against a, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. I mean, and you notice it doesn't say a son-in-law against a mother-in-law. I was curious about that. <laughs> I guess that was just kind of assumed, wasn't it? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Okay, a man's enemies will be members of his own household. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What do you all think about this powerful passage? Yes. Well, who has the most influence normally on you? Culturally, genetically, everything is... The, the first people you imprinted on was your parents, and then came your siblings, and all of this. And if they have life habits that are in the direction you don't want to go, you will have to essentially divorce yourself from their position to move towards God. Thoughts about that? I think that's uh, I think that's a very good point. What uh, what condition are we born into the world in? Sin, Sin selfish. And where do we get that from, each individually? Individually, where do we get that from, directly? Our parents. Our parents. Yeah. So where do we get it from, right? You know, you know, God didn't make us exactly like we are. Did you all know that? This is a confusing thing for a lot of people, I find. A lot of people think that, uh, that you know, you see the shirts, God made me the way I am and God don't make no junk. Right. You seen those shirts? Yeah. And they'll say the Psalms where he knit me together in my mother's womb as proof that God made me just like I am. Does that mean the kids with spinal bifida and anencephaly and cardiac congenital defects that God had a bad knitting day? No. <laughs> he was a little tired. Sleep. Think about it. I mean, if he did the knitting and we all these kids born all these defects and God was, you know, off on his knitting that day? Hmm. What about the fact, even more poignant than the physical defects? How many of us were born sinners? Then if, in fact, we claim that we were created directly by God's hand, as Adam was, as Eve was, then can't we rightly say, God, you created me a sinner? Mm -hmm. If we claim God created us directly. Then we can actually lay it at God's feet and say, God created sin and sinners because he created me a sinner, if we claim that. But but I don't think that holds up. I think he created Adam and Eve and gave them an ability called procreation and told them to be fruitful and multiply in the world before they sinned. After they sinned, did he take that ability from them? No. No. And so they began to have children in their image. And they were now sinners. And their children were born sinners. And the Bible makes this very clear. We are all descendants of Adam, born in sin, conceived in iniquity, says in Psalms 51. This is a great area of confusion. And so, come back to the point, though. Come to bring a sword. A sword. What sword do you think he brought? You see, this was also misunderstood. Recently, in one of our nearby pulpits, a preacher got up and spoke word of, of God from Jeremiah and Isaiah claiming the Old Testament passages about how he will come in the end day and slay the wicked with his fierce and awesome sword as proof that God will inflict horrible pain and suffering and killing upon the wicked. Is that a different sword? in Isaiah and Jeremiah than Jesus is talking about here. Is it the same sword? Same same one as in Revelation. Revelation 19, there's a rider on a white horse. Who's that rider? Christ. Christ, and it says he has a sword coming out of his mouth. Has he got a piece of metal sticking out of his mouth? No. 
No, what is it that comes out of the mouth? Words, and of course Christ always speaks words of truth, so it's the word of truth. Hebrews 4 says the, the word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, severing bone and marrow, soul and spirit. Okay? This is a sort of truth. The sort of truth which slays the wicked in the end, which is the same as the fires of truth we just got done talking about. The truth that burns through the lies and brings conviction to the mind and, and destroys the, the deceptiveness in the heart. And so when he's saying, I've come to bring a sword to separate families, he's talking which sword? It's the sword of truth. This would be the same as he said in John chapter 3 to Nicodemus, unless you're born again. We're born, why do we have to be born again? Well, what was our first birth? Born into? Sin. sin. Biologically, we were born from sinful mother, sinful father, born in sin, conceived in iniquity, Psalm 51. We were born sinners, self-centered. We have to be reborn. We have to have the sword of truth convict the heart, bring us to conversion, transformation of heart, mind, and character. So he's come for the sword to sever us from worldly, selfish relationships and to establish us so we're being cut away from the descendancy of Adam, the first Adam, and we're being an established branches grafted into the vine, Jesus Christ. So he's pruning off or cutting us away from these, establishing us into the vine, Jesus Christ, reborn into Christ Jesus. That's what he's talking about, isn't it? Yeah. Any thoughts about that? We often talk about children as being innocent, and in many religious persuasions, it's taught that um, the children will be taken to heaven because obviously they are not sinners. And yet... And, and that's because they have a judicial right. mindset. Judicial mindset. In other words, in order to be guilty, you have to have uh, ability to make informed decisions and have culpability. But it's not a judicial problem we suffer under. It's a conditional problem. An HIV-infected man and an HIV-infected woman get together, have a child, and the child is born HIV-infected. What did the child do wrong? So can we say the child is, in fact, innocent of wrongdoing? Can't we? They didn't do anything wrong. But does the child still have a terminal condition, if not cured, will kill it? That's our situation. So children are born um, judicious, judicially innocent, but we're still all terminal and dying. We still need a remedy. And so the, 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 the breakdown is in this irrational holding to a forensic model, a judicial model, as to what the problem that God is trying to solve is. And this irrational holding to it brings us all these irrational conclusions about what God was doing. This is why the kingdom of heaven is near. Go and heal. Go and restore because he was trying to teach the plan of salvation. Salvation comes from the word salve, like an eye salve. It means to heal. It's the plan of healing, regeneration, recreation, restoration, building up, redevelopment, rewriting the law back in the heart and mind, it says in Hebrews chapter 8 and 10. I mean, this is the plan of salvation, to restore what was lost, broken, and damaged when Adam fell into sin. It's not a judicial act. Does that make sense? That doesn't mean there's not law involved. This is where people get confused. They'll hear what I just said and say, oh, he's against the law. He doesn't believe in the law. The law has no power. He's antinomian. He's against the law. No. What law are we talking about? The law of? The law of love, which is a principle on which life operates. And we have to restore to be in harmony with this law. It is to be written in the heart and mind. 
This is what Christ came to do, to put the law, the law of love, back into the human species, which he did through his life on earth, ultimately culminating with his free giving death. And notice verse 39 in our very text. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. How is that connected directly to the law of God that we're talking about right now? What are the two antagonistic principles at war on this planet? God's law of love. Greater love is no man than he gives his life for a friend. I love you so much I'll do whatever I have to for your health and welfare, including, if necessary, give my life that you might live. Giving my life away, losing my life. Back in harmony with the law of love, finding life. At war, Satan's principle, survival of the fittest. I'll do whatever I have to to protect myself, including if it comes down to it, kill you that I might live. Find my life, protect my life. I'm going to lose it. But I give my life away in love for others. I find it. This is God's law being written back in the heart and mind he's talking about here. This is the principle of life. Yes? How would you explain verse 35? Yes. Come to turn man against his father and against his daughter. Yes. That's we're born in this inherent state of selfishness. That's how we're born. And he wants to turn us away from the earthly, selfish, inherent nature that we get from our parents back to a selfless, other-centered nature, cutting us away from those things. Yes. Myself than you. That's right. And look at what happens to families when, if they, if they are self-centered, then one of their members decides to adopt the law of love. There's often a rebellion. There's often an enmity. There's this God-given enmity between the serpent seed and, and the seed of God. That's what creates this conflict of turning families against one another. We're going into the lesson finally now. (laughs) Monday's lesson. The third question down, it says, What special powers did the disciples have? How can we, without those powers, still minister and witness to the world? First question. Did the disciples have special powers? Christ gave them power to cast out demons and to heal the sick. They had the Holy Spirit. Let's just bring the dead back to life. Mm I say no. Lori says no. No special powers that the disciples possessed. They did not have special powers. They were given So, yeah, so did the disciples go around and where they went, were there healings and miracles and things like that going on? Yeah, so my question is, were they the ones healing... Were they the ones driving out the evil spirits? Uh, were they, or were they the agents by which the Holy Spirit was doing these things? And it was God accomplishing these works through them. So, you know, sometimes God does give special power. He gave Samson special power, didn't he? Samson had special power that until it was removed from him, he was at liberty to use at his own judgment. Isn't that true? Not, not Sam, but he had special powers that he was able to use. Are we saying that's what happened here to the disciples? They suddenly had special powers of their own that they could go around and, and utilize? Or were they empowered with certain spiritual authority that was the Holy Spirit working through them? And was no more than we can have. That's right. Well, that's my next question. Uh, so what did Christ actually give them? If he didn't give them special power like he gave Samson, or he gave Solomon. Solomon got special divine wisdom too, didn't he? Yeah. If they didn't get actual special power that now was inherently residing in them after receiving the gift, then what did he give them? The The Holy Spirit. He gave them the key to unlock heaven's storehouse. Which was? What was the key? 
And what, so what was, okay, the key was a connection with God. I think we all agree that when we're truly, fully, completely connected with God and the Holy Spirit, there's power there, isn't there? We all agree with that. Then what was the key that made that connection? Pardon? Okay, there was a willingness, but she said faith. She said faith, trust, confidence. Did Christ's word to them instill in them, do you think, some greater level of confidence that they didn't have before he told them that they would have this authority. If you think about your own self now, you you all love Christ. That's why you're here. You want a closer walk with him. If he happened to be sitting right up here in this chair and he looked at two or three of you and said, hey, I want you to go out on this mission for me and I am giving you authority over all this stuff. Would that enhance your confidence to do the mission? Would you go out with more faith? With more assurance? You think that his word instilled confident. Do you think that he is in any way wanting to withhold those same spirit-indwelling power from you or me? No. Mm -hmm. Or does he want to give us that same power he gave the disciples? Yes. Called the latter rain. The latter rain. Isn't it also a willingness to be that channel through which he can work? Yeah, willingness to be that channel. That's true. Interesting. Judas. Was Judas one of these twelve? And was he doing these same things? How willing was Judas? Was Peter, while he was doing these things, converted? Or was he unconverted? Is there any any uncertainty with that? I hear a lot of mumbling. Well, Christ said, when you are converted... Feed my sheep, which was three years later, wasn't it? Yeah. What does that tell us about God's willingness to work with people before they're fully converted? Do we have that same gracious attitude? Or do we demand perfection from anybody who should work in God's cause? And if we find out somebody's made a mistake, well, they're out the door. You can't be a deacon. You can't be an elder. You can't be a Sabbath school teacher. You certainly can't be a preacher. You can't play the organ. You can't do anything because you've made a mistake. Is that how God works? Let's think of God's great men in the Bible. Noah, he had an alcohol problem. Moses was a murderer. Pardon? David, David, adulterer and murderer. Abraham was a liar, liar, repeatedly. (laughs) Jacob had uh, was an idolater at at times, or at least his family was, and he was a cheater for sure and a liar. Remember the idols they had when they when Laban came after them, and the yeah. Um, Rahab was a prostitute. prostitute. Boy, how many of those would you vote for office? Do you see how do you see how totally biased and prejudiced and closed our man looks on the outward appearance, God looks on the heart. Do you see how pitiful we are in how we judge people? We're pitiful. We really, really are. And so what is Christ looking for? He's looking for willingness. You understand, if he only called perfect people, none of us would be called. He's calling us because we're all sick with the same sickness. We all have symptoms, and the symptoms of the sickness are acts of sin. And so every one of our lives will be able to point to and find, wow, you had a fever, you had nausea, you had vomiting, you had diarrhea, you had cramps, you had this, well, you had, you, know, you lied, you cheated, you, you committed adultery, you did this, you did that. We all have sins historically in our life. That's not the question. The question is, are we working with the healer to be restored, healed, and regenerated over time so we're not like that anymore? That's the question. And God worked with people who were willing to change. 
which were, if you remember, in his society, the most outcasts of society. Does that help to explain why at the end of time uh, it says um, people will say, but we did this in your name, we mm-hmm. healed in your name, we raised, we did all this in your name, and he says, get away from me, you evildoers, I never knew you. Exactly. No, exactly right. time understanding why they could do all that in God's name and still not be saved. That's right. And they were noticed it was doing the name of Jesus, not the name of Buddha, Hare Krishna, or Muhammad. That text specifically defines it. Do it in my name. These are Christians that are doing this, and he never knows them. It's a big shock to a lot of Christians to realize you could be in the church and doing all these things for Christ and still not be on his side. But that's what Christ himself said. Right, let's jump to Friday, and we can come back to some others if we have time. But in Friday's lesson, the first paragraph says, um, Men's hearts are no softer today than when Christ was upon the earth. They will do all in their power to aid the great adversary in making it as hard as possible for the servants of Christ, just as the people did with Christ when he was upon the earth. They will scourge with the tongue and slander and falsehood. They will criticize and turn against the servants of God the very efforts he is leading them to make. They will, with their evil surmising, see fraud and dishonesty where all is right and where perfect integrity exists. They lay selfish motives to the charge of God's servants when he himself is leading them and when they would give even their lives if God required it. So, I pull that reference out. You see the evil that they put at someone else's charge. And I want to talk about that. There's a text in the Bible, Matthew 7, 1 and 2, where it says, Do not judge, for you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured against you. What is the passage I just read and the paragraph I just read? What's the thread? How do they connect? You see others through your eyes. You see others through your eyes, she says. So when you make judgments about other people, you're only revealing what's in your own heart. That's why it will be judged against you, because that's where it resides. When you see someone else is selfish you're actually promoting the selfishness or, or talking about the selfishness in your own heart. Talking about this, this judgmental attitude, the attitude we read in the paragraph here. We're not talking about in a loving way as Christ would see people's problems or as a physician, when a physician sees a, a person's sickness with the compassion to heal, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the judgmental critical heart when we point out the defects to hurt, to abuse, to make fun, to lord over, to make ourselves feel better. When we see those defects in people, we're actually showing the defect in our own heart. And that's why it comes back to be judged against us, because that's our condition. But when we do have a heart for love for people, we will still see defects, but we won't broadcast it about. We won't be critical. We won't be ugly. We will be accepting. We'll be loving. And this is one of the functions of the church. Do you understand? One of the insidious problems of sin is that when we sin, we feel ashamed. We go and hide. Adam ran and hid because he was afraid. We don't hide just from God, but people do hide from God. We hide from each other. We put on facades. We put on coverings. We put on cloaks, fig leaves, our own devising to try and, because we're so ashamed that no one could ever love us, no one could ever like us. I had a young girl in my office in the past few weeks who had, who had done some things that adolescents frequently do. And she felt so guilty, so ashamed. She felt like God could never, never like her again, that she was out of God's grace. She could never be forgiven for what she's done. And I, of course, told her some of the stories about the woman caught in adultery and how Christ said, neither do I condemn you. See, God is not in the condemning business. The condemnation comes from our own consciousness, from our own minds, from our own misjudgment. We feel so ashamed. And one of the purposes of the church is for us to love each other. 
When we find out that someone's made a mistake, to put the arms of love and acceptance around them and embrace them and build them up, not condemn them, not stone them, not, ex- not, not excommunicate them. Amen. That's what Christ went about doing. Look at his life. He, that's why he was accused. Oh, he hangs out with sinners. <laughs> he's no good. He's a, yeah, he's a glutton and a drunkard. But what was he doing? He was sending the message, I love you. And it's not about the acts of sin. They're symptoms of the heart condition. If you trust me, if you let me in, I'll heal you. And the symptoms will go away. And the purpose of the church is to show that kind of accepting love of people. Not acceptance of rebellious lifestyle and hostility towards God. Acceptance of people who have made mistakes and want to live a better life. Going back to your comment about, you know, all of us are, are broken and defective. And sometimes we are reticent to witness or to act as God's representatives because of our perceived miscomings and whatnot. And um, in the, the chapter that was assigned to the Friday's lesson for reading the Desire of Ages, uh, page 352, just a couple sentences out of it, um, they are to contend with supernatural forces, but they are assured of supernatural help. All the intelligence of heaven are in this army. And more than angels are in the ranks. The Holy Spirit, representative of the captain of the Lord's host, comes down to direct the battle. Our infirmities may be many, our sins and mistakes grievous, but the grace of God is for all who seek it with contrition, and the power of omnipotence is enlisted in our behalf of those who trust in God. Absolutely. Beautifully said. And so often we don't believe that because we are defective. We're afraid that God is not, you know, able to work with us. And just as we read out of the quarterly, we then project out of ourselves our selfishness, our weakness, our distortion, and we see God as being like us and not willing to like us because we wouldn't like somebody like us. We don't like ourselves. How can he like us? And it's a gross distortion. And we need to see the truth as revealed in Christ, that he loves us and wants to heal us. And the medical model is truly the best model because any of the physicians and healthcare practitioners in this room will tell you that we often see physical deformity, physically ill things that are gross and disgusting, uh, pus and this, all this kind of stuff. But we're not repulsed by the people. Our heart goes out and we want to reach out in ministry to help heal and restore. Isn't that true? Exactly. That's God's heart to our characters and our minds. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you do love us and you see past the sickness of our mistakes, the sickness of our hearts. You see what we can be when we reunite back with you if we'd only trust you. You sent your son to win us to trust. You sent your son to, to win the battle for our, for our freedom and our, and our victory over sin. And we pray now that as we open our hearts to you, your spirit will be poured out, taking the victories that Christ has, has achieved and reproducing them in our hearts and minds, that we can have confidence, we can have love, we can have victory over fears and insecurities, and we can know that we are loved by you. We pray in your holy name. Amen.